Welcome to the Bread of Life, a radio ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. Hello everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and it's my great honor to bring to you God's Word today. To learn about the significant work that God has graciously given us to participate in around the world in equipping evangelists, disciple-makers, and church planters, go to traincpe.org. And to find out about our fellowship in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Now listen to these great words from Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we rejoice also in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. There is talk at times in a heated political world of social reconciliation, but today let's set the background to begin talking about the greatest reconciliation of all. Well, we're looking at the book of Romans, and as we're going through the book of Romans, we're beginning to see a pattern that's developing, and we're beginning to understand something that God is doing. I mentioned this last week, but I think that it can be argued and seen in all the pattern of discourse and all the things that Paul is presenting and proclaiming as he brings the gospel to bear and brings its application to bear upon the church and upon the believer, his aim seems to be above everything else to solidify the believing church in a great sense of the assurance and security that they have in their salvation. For that reason, he must strip from them any confidence in their own moral goodness because there's no security in your morality. It's something that comes and goes and that's fickly holds on to you and you hold on to it fickly yourself. But And there's no salvation in your morality. And, and he has to strip away from them their sense of the superiority of even their religious standing and state because there's no security in their religious state and standings. They're secure in one thing. It's having put their faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ alone, having received the gift of grace that God has given them of salvation through the Son and holding and clinging on to Him alone. And in that faith, in that laying hold of Christ, not in any sense holding on to their own sense of their own moral goodness, not holding on to any sense of their religious performance, but simply yielding themselves up to believing and trusting and putting their faith in Christ alone, that they are entered into this life and this assurance of great comfort and security they have. They're secured in a wonderful salvation. And Paul, in bringing that salvation before them, talks about the experience that they have at that moment when they believe in Him. They have, they have peace with God. They have opened this wonderful access into the grace of God. They have hope and, and rejoicing in the hope of the glory that is yet to come upon their lives. This change and this transformation, this peace they have with God, this great joy in the access of grace, this burgeoning, glorying in the hope that lies before them, carries them through even difficult trials and difficulties. They even rejoice in their trials and difficulties because those trials and difficulties give evidence and proof that their faith in God is not just a conventional thing. They weren't just joining some train of mass belief or confession of around them. They weren't just simply trying to buy a ticket into heaven. They weren't just somehow appealing to the pressures that were put upon them so that they could satisfy their neighbor or whatever it was. Their faith was genuinely and deeply in Jesus Christ. And in response to that faith, He granted them salvation and He had transformed them. 
and the transformation was so wonderful and so profound that it, it revealed itself in the midst of tribulation and trials. In the middle of their tribulations and trials, they discovered that what they delighted in more than anything else was their love for God and God's love for them. That what they wanted more than anything else in the midst of their tribulation and trials was not to be over their tribulation and trials. It was in the midst of those tribulations, in the midst of those trials, what they wanted was to know God and enjoy God and love God and experience God. We mentioned this now in two weeks, but we use the illustration of David, when David was driven out from Jerusalem, this capital that he had conquered and that he had set up his palace and his kingdom and reigning over all of Israel. And David goes through a moment in which his son Absalom develops a coup and sets up an alternative government and drives him at threat of his own life out of Jerusalem. And as David is fleeing, David finds a song building up in his spirit and his heart that there's only one thing that he desires, and that is to seek and find the face of God. That's to return to the tabernacle where he can inquire into the things of God. He doesn't want to get back to Jerusalem to reacquire the power that he was losing, to reestablish his throne, to gain access to all the treasury that he developed in his kingdom, to re-inhabit his palace. He just wants to go and find the face of God and seek the face of God. And so Psalm 27, oddly enough, is this psalm that David writes when he's fleeing Jerusalem. You read it. And it's a song of triumph. It's a song of triumph. It's the triumph of a desire for God that only God could have placed in his heart. The enemy plays a trick in us. We do this ourselves. Sometimes we run these gambits in our mind of how we're going to live for God and how we're going to obey God because we think if we follow this equation, these are the things we're going to get out of it. And so our faith becomes, in a sense, a means, and our belief in God becomes a means to an end of our own satisfaction or desires the designs we have for our life. This happens even when we don't want it to happen. It's just like a calculation that kind of threads through our minds. And then we begin to doubt the real purity of our faith because of these things. Wonderfully, there's a day coming when the Lord Jesus is going to return and we ourselves are going to pass through a fiery trial in which there's going to be burned away all the wood, hay, and stubble. So just the gold, silver, and precious stone of a pure motivation for God Himself will remain. We wonder sometimes, what am I constructing here in this life of faith? Is this just a... A straw house that I'm building? Is this a house of sticks? Is, is this just utilitarian faith that I'm using to get to my ends? And if you haven't asked that, you should. Because oftentimes it's how it manifests itself in our life and even in our prayer life. Wonderfully, God brings trials, fiery trials upon us. Those trials come upon us and they, they reveal, no, no. Bottom line is this. I want to know Him. I want to experience Him. I want to enjoy Him. I delight in Him. My faith is grounded in Christ who I've given myself to and I've received and He's transformed me. And, and that's our delight. And that's our joy. Paul's leading the Christians into this understanding of the, the confirmation even of faith that rises from them in the midst of their trials, just demonstrating that this faith has secured them in a secure state and standing and assurance before God. And then Paul now reveals in that situation, in chapter 5, he begins to help them explore and see how behind this saving work of God is not God just answering His justice for us and God fulfilling our need to be justly forgiven, but also behind it, motivating it all, is God's tremendous and powerful love for us. And so we've seen how, how God came to us and He gave His gift of salvation for us, which was the gift of His Son dying for us. 
And he died for us, Paul says here in this passage, when we were enemies. He died for us when we were transgressors and sinners. He died for us when we were ungodly and the image that God had stamped us on had been broken and marred and defaced and was a ruin. He died for us when we were, in a sense, spiritually in ruins. And yet when He came to engage us in our sins and when He engaged us as enemies of God and when He engaged us as this ruined, defaced, these defaced image bearers, broken in every way, He didn't actually come to us and meet us in that condition. Instead, our passage says He came and met us with this mindset and this attitude towards us. He engaged us as those who were without strength. As those who were just weak and helpless and those who were poor and pathetic and those who were sick and sore and powerless. Our need was a salvation. Our true condition was we were enemies of God. We were transgressors against God. We were defaced and ungodly. And yet God in coming to meet that need met us as just those who were without strength, weak. That's merciful. It's kind. That's loving. It demonstrates the great grace and the great mercy that God has shown for us. And it also should show us how wonderfully secure we are. If God could have addressed me as an enemy, if God could have addressed me as a sinner, if God could have come and encountered me as a ruined wreck and dealt with me in that way, because that's what I was. But instead, in that condition, God addressed me as just without strength and weak and helpless and needing His action and His power and His saving work. Now that He's saved me, now that He's redeemed me, now that He's reconciled me, now that He's granted me faith to believe and receive this grace of salvation, how will He deal with me now? This is Paul's argument. He'll continue to be gracious to you. You are secure now in all the benefits of that salvation. It's all yours. That's the great message that's before us here. That's the great thing that He's bringing to us. And now Paul will, in a sense, pivot to this loving work of salvation to define it for us in a wonderful way. And the word he uses to define this salvation for us, this place that we've come to in which we've entered into this salvation, is the word reconciled. We've been reconciled. And so this morning, for a second, let's just consider what it means, what this reconciliation means. And the first thing that I'd have us note is this. And we're looking at verses 10 and 11 here. Let me read them to you again. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So the first thing I want you to see here is that this reconciliation is grounded in realized or a realized terms for peace. It means, really, when we say that we've been reconciled, we have to start with this. It means we were enemies. And it means that enemies were brought together and now have become friends. God loved us even when we were enemies. That's why He took the action to establish the terms and meet the terms. But in meeting the terms, He made it possible for us as enemies of God to now be made friends with God. We were, before this reconciliation, before God began to enact and carry out the terms of this reconciliation, we were enemies of God. We were on opposing sides. We were on the rebelling side, and God was on the side in which He was against the rebels. The idea here is not simply that 
I was at enmity with God. The problem was just that I had a bad attitude towards God, but God was all love and God was all grace, and I was just turning my back and I was refusing Him. That's not the idea here. Reconciliation is the bringing together of two, and He was at enmity with us. He was opposed to us in our sins. He was opposed to us in our sins. The Bible says we were facing the wrath of God. This passage even says we've been saved from the wrath of God. God's wrath and God's judgment was set against us. There was an enmity. There was a, a conflict between the two that had come about. God has taken up an action in order to reconcile us, but it, it, it implies that there's this conflict. And reconciliation implies that there is a breach in a relationship and that these parties are at odds with each other. Yet in reconciliation, something happens. God provides and then meets the terms of peace. And we accept them. Here are his terms. God says, I'll provide my son to suffer and die in the place of your sins. And I will give you his perfect righteousness in the place of all of your failings. And I will create and place in you a new heart, a heart that is predisposed to love me and serve me. And on your part, you will accept my payment. You will receive it. You will present your life and your heart to me for my son's recreating and he will fill you and flood you with his life and he will reign and rule within you and we'll be reconciled. And we'll be reconciled. Thanks for listening in today to The Bread of Life. Keep the missionaries of Church Partnership Evangelism in your prayers as they work in Ecuador and Cambodia and India and Indonesia and Greece and Bulgaria to release the body of Christ as his witnesses. Find out more by going to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.